0: Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Friday the 29th of May and we're still in lockdown. And when will I stop saying that? Over the course of the last week, measures have gradually been brought forward to ease parts of the lockdown in places, somewhat shambolically and ill-preparedly certainly, but nonetheless a real easing with certain schools and certain year groups slated to return on Monday and the Prime Minister announcing yesterday that people would be permitted to meet in groups of up to six people outside, including in private gardens, so long as social distancing is maintained outdoor markets and for some reason car showrooms can reopen for monday as well and one thing this tells us is that the ease off of lockdown is going to be informal and patchy uh, partly because it's ill communicated and partly i think at least when it comes to human behavior it's going to be locked into a weird position where it's in some ways ahead of but in a lot of ways responding to the ways in which people are already behaving or starting to behave but we'll talk a bit more about the wisdom of easing off the lockdown and what's likely to happen in response in just a bit because it's also true that it certainly feels like the announcements on this stuff are a bit rushed and it's certainly clear that the new track and trace program as operated uh, as apparently most of the country now is operated by that byword for incompetence that is circo Uh, that's not really ready to be implemented but it won't be fully operational at the local level until the end of june And actually, the more suspicious members of the public wonder if this has been brought forward because of the scandal embroiling the government and the prime minister over Dominic Cummings, a moment which seems to have finally tipped the Tory ratings, uh, including for those uh, Tories who normally do quite well in public opinion, into the negative Uh, There was, of course, that quite remarkable moment last night in the briefing where the Prime Minister intervened to stop again and again questions being asked of the government's chief scientists about whether the medical and scientific elements of the Cummings affair, whether his various jaunts were medically risky, uh, or perhaps more importantly, what impact they were likely to have on public health. Uh, Johnson intervened to stop those questions being answered. His intervention, the journalist's... Follow-ups, motivated quite reasonably by the sense of prime ministerial censure, uh, suggest that there's still quite a serious problem, a serious question on public opinion over this issue. And it does look like it's the court of public opinion rather than the courts proper in which it will be decided. Uh, And it looks even like he might have got away with it through sheer uh, obnoxious obduracy, uh, unless anything more comes out. Uh, all eyes on the Sunday papers there. But a last few things on Cummings, and then I want to avoid talking about that uh, bargain basement Machiavelli for at least a little while. Uh, I wrote a piece for The Guardian yesterday which argued that the Cummings affair was important, not for what it told us about Cummings's own breach of regulations itself, but about the structure of British politics, not so much that the breach took place, but that, one, the Prime Minister and government ministers were willing to lie in order to defend him, and two, that such lies were obvious and cynical and made little pretense of being much more than lies, Uh, and that therefore, three, this is another piece of evidence uh, that there are few, if any, consequences at the top of politics anymore, and that politics without consequences is a dangerous place indeed. Now, all that argument, of course, will be familiar to anyone who's been listening to this show over the last few weeks, though I do recommend you, of course, go and read the article because it goes down some interesting byways from uh, Ben Johnson's 1603 play, Sir His Fool, uh, uh, to Adorno on the knowing wink of the cynic, Uh, So lots of stuff in there. I'll pop it in the show notes uh, for you to to read. Uh, But I want to expand on something I alluded to at the end of that piece. When consequences disappear in politics, we're in danger. Democracies are a bit more resilient than some of the pearl-clutching prophets of doom suggest, but they're still pretty fragile things nonetheless. It is a truism to say that they rely on popular consent and that the nature of the power that we give our leaders is conditional on their being bound by the same law as the rest of us. It's the law that they get to decide on and to make, uh, and that the vanishing of consequences on the top of politics uh, chips away at that consent. But it's more than that. It causes trust in the political process to wither entirely. More than consent, democratic politics depends to a certain degree on faith. That though the political system may be imperfect, it is at least responsive, that if politics, in Max Weber's very famous phrase, is the the slow drilling of hard boards. Then the drill isn't blunted and the boards are actually capable of being drilled. It's not given that people keep faith with democratic politics. Indeed, the history of democracy as an idea is replete with moments in which popular faith is extinguished through corruption or tyranny or oligarchy. Now, obviously, there are all these surveys, you see news new stories on them every so often, which suggests uh, a kind of petering out of faith in democracy, at least in parts of the West, uh, and a growing attraction to strongman politics. That's up Dominic Cummings's alley, of course. None of this wishy-washy deliberation or debate nonsense. Despite these, of course, being, in fact, the basis of democratic politics. I think the less obvious dangers are actually twofold, two kind of possible trajectories. I'm not an idealist about actually existing democracy. I never have been. Uh, but it seems to me one of its continual malaises, at least in its current form, is its gradual cartelization. And because of the nature of political cartels, uh, politics is gradual insulation uh, from renewal, from being renewed from below. And you know, this is something that happens within political parties as well as political systems. I think the Labour Party is a great example of this in some ways. So you get these political parties, these political systems, which become increasingly ossified and completely unresponsive to pressure for political change, effectively rebuffing those pushing for it, uh, who are often, of course... Young. Uh, this is a story, by the way, of various European democracies about 20 years after the end of the Second World War. Uh, and either it produces a wave of people who become then very cynical about the democratic process and who are effectively, uh, you know, disengaged. And one of the things I said in that Guardian piece is that. Populism, uh, so-called, is often better thought of as a kind of cynicism about democracy, about the possibility of politics in the first place. Uh, or those uh, who are still, you know, this is the second option, is those who are still determined for social change are increasingly drawn to anti-democratic, anti-political measures uh, like revolutionary armed terrorism uh, or withdrawing from the world into dropout communes and the like two very different outcomes there but but have some structural similarities and neither 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 of those twofold options are a good outcome either cynicism um or or cho- the choice of a kind of anti-democratic anti-politics um so neither is a good outcome but political systems can live very happily with disengaged and discontented populaces for a good long time eventually though they start to come apart at the seams. And the way I think about this stuff is that oligarchy has always been the greatest enemy to democracy, uh, right the way back to the invention of the idea of democracy itself in ancient Greece. Uh, it's less my fear that we'll see the rise again of the classical tyrannies which defined the corruption of democracy in the 20th century, uh, but that we'll see the gradual evacuation of democratic polities, of democratic politics, uh, so that they become increasingly managed democracies. With elections still every few years for a strong ish leader with all the oligarchs and the wealthy behind him disenchanted populace compliant press all of that as we face a world which surely demands more politics not less uh, as we face threats far greater uh, than this pandemic than this virus and that's why all this matters um, I just wanted to flag a piece by the superb writer and co-host of the excellent Bad Gaze podcast, Hugh Lemmy. On his Substack newsletter, it's a piece which jumps off from the heckling of Cummings by neighbours in his own street to consider the role of the heckler in politics, uh, especially in British politics. And Hugh has always been superbly attentive to this stuff. He distant voices, the encounter with the unexpected in politics and the pieces very much worth a read. Link is in the notes to the show. Uh, I think of it as in the same tradition as a lot of British Marxist historians who pay kind of quite careful attention to untheorized and instinctive acts of dissidents among ordinary people in British history and tangentially I often wonder if these are so present and so remarkable a part of the history of resistance in Britain partly because Britain's republican moment was early and abortive and so the language and theory of liberty available for much of British history was either foreign and relatively confined to those interested or still cast in strange and antique terms like the Norman yoke. Anyway the question from it that I've been rolling around in my head is this one to quote I why is a neighbour of Cummings hanging from his window able to offer a stronger interrogation of the Anorak Richelieu than the country's main political editors? It's a good question. Uh, and Hugh goes on to ask about why there's been so virulent a reaction to Cummings being heckled in the street by his neighbours, uh, with commentators calling it a mob. Uh, effectively, why it's taken as a sign of political breakdown rather than as of a, a, a sign of a strong democratic culture. And I agree, actually, that is odd. Now, admittedly, as someone who once chased Vince Cable around Parliament Square with a megaphone, I think a bit of heckling now and then is very good for politicians. And there are difficulties here about where the boundary line is on this stuff, and there are important boundaries, and we do need to be aware of them. The idea that politics should be confined only to meetings and chambers and councils and parliaments, well, I think that's a very dangerous idea indeed. Up the hecklers. And you can subscribe to Hugh's newsletter on Substack and I really, really recommend it. All right, the coming stuff aside, the decay of the political system that it represents, uh, the major news is that some schools are supposed to reopen from this coming Monday with primary schools opening for reception year one and year six children. uh, Though this plan has been on the cards for a while and schools have been pushed towards it for a couple of weeks, I think it's right to see a political impetus here in a wider sense out of economic compulsion to try to lift the lockdown and to stick to plans during a week beset by political scandal. There's two things on this. One is that other countries that have eased their lockdowns uh, in Europe locked down much harder uh, and much earlier than Britain and have seen their excess mortality rates return close to their average. By the best estimates, Britain's uh, uh, Britain's rate is still quite high, uh, though it's spatially concentrated in major metropolises uh, and in care homes. And its R, the infection rate number, also remains perilously high. Um, Here's David King the former government scientific advisor and chair of Independent SAGE, which is a group of eminent scientists who aren't on the government's panel, but who are trying to enhance uh, what they see as a stunted and politically warped scientific conversation uh, and a body that is, of course, uh, limited by the fact that it's uh, an official government body.
1: That the, the R factor for the disease across the country is between 0.7 and 0.9. It's quite close to 1. If it goes above 1%, we're back into exponential growth of this uh, epidemic. And we also know from the calculations published by SAGE that opening up the schools has the potential to raise the R factor by up to 0.3. So we, we are really concerned that the level of infectivity across the country as a whole is too high at the moment to open the schools and even leaving it for a a couple of weeks would reduce the onset of the disease in the country by probably a factor of two from opening the, uh, the schools up.
0: So if R is high and the reopening of schools could boost it and we still have a huge spike in excess deaths, why do it at all? Well, first, I think it's worth acknowledging that this is likely to be a kind of Potemkin reopening, given opposition from teaching unions, staff, many local authorities and parents. Uh, But I think this is rather like the other loosenings of restrictions that, however inadvisable it may be, it's being done partly as a way of easing and managing headlines and the public mood. Uh, But it's also done as a bit of a gamble. Now, that gamble is that the rates of community transmission are reasonably low outside of particular hotspots, that social distancing will be obeyed, and that the benefits of permitting limited social contact outdoors outweigh the dangers. Now, all of this is consonant with the calculation that one, a vaccine remains far off, two, the government expects there to be a second wave, possibly a third, and thus three, in order to ensure compliance with reintroduced and sharper lockdown measures in such a wave in the future, some degree of relaxation is essential now, especially if that wave comes as it's likely to do in a winter crisis uh, alongside winter influenza, which would necessitate a very strong and very rigorous lockdown. Uh, Now, this is an especially risky gamble because if the R tips above one we return to exponential growth in cases doesn't look like the government's track and trace program is anywhere near ready but that's my reading of the rationale so at the very least I would say that if you're meeting people socially and I do think it's actually valuable for people's sanity to do so do take the social distancing measures seriously wear a mask or a face covering where appropriate uh, where possible and don't think suddenly everything's just all right As for schools themselves, I've said before that I think the NEU is in an interesting position here. And you should go back and listen uh, to that, to to discussions in the past about trade unions. Uh, We should be hearing more from teachers' voices as we go into next week on this show. It's a genuinely interesting situation where teachers and parents uh, seem overwhelmingly on the same side, which isn't always the case for teachers' unions. Uh, but one thing that the return date set by government does reveal is how balkanized and weird the education system in this country has become, with the academy chains being outside local authority control, or some schools still run by local authority. So even if your local authority has stood up to the government, you'll still find some schools trying to open. It's a strange and an and unequal, mosaic like system. Uh A couple of things which could be useful here. Local authorities can promise, it's the thing they can do, can promise not to prosecute or pursue parents who are too concerned to send their kids in. That would be genuinely, I think, very helpful and some councils, uh, some local authorities have done that already. Second, the teaching unions have seen a bit of a spike of recruitment uh, as teachers, including those at academy schools, some of which have in the past operated informal but very strong anti-union policy, are concerned about their own health Uh, while being pushed back to work, thus joining the union. Now, I think that's promising, but a paper membership is just that, a paper membership. But if they were to become more active, well, that might make things very interesting indeed. More on that as schools return early next week. Now.
1: Hate racists with a passion. And for people to have hate racists, and you feel like (laughs) now you want to come and be showing yourself, and you think that someone like me is gonna back down. very, very mad. It's very, very important at this time that we ignore ignorance. And we ignore people. Sorry, my lips are dry. We ignore people that come through and try to make these situations what they're not. And in no way, obviously you lot know, man. I'm not even apologizing, first of all. You lot better fucking believe that. But there's no way that I have the opinion that there's no other forms of racism. Of course, there's other forms of racism, but a black man was just murdered in cold blood in the streets, stateside, again, while saying that he can't breathe. That's a continuous cycle going on. And although I don't live in the States, but I'm black, fuck that.
0: That was John Boyega, Star Wars star and good South London boy, uh, reacting to racist fans as he spoke up over the protests exploding uh, over the racist murder of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis in the United States. Last night saw the third night of protests, including in cities beyond Minneapolis, uh, including attempts partly successful to burn down a police station there uh, and very widespread civil unrest prompting an intervention from trump effectively threatening extrajudicial murder of protesters there is something profoundly difficult in seeing six years after eric garner's death at the hands of the police whose last words were i can't breathe another black man murdered in the same way saying those same words as his last words no wonder they're in the streets over there I saw one commentator wringing his hands over the dystopian scenes after the protest, ash and broken glass. It seems to me the indication of dystopia, the real dystopia, is a police officer slowly, not with a gun, but by asphyxiation, murdering a man in the street as three fellow officers looked on and in front of witnesses. Yeah, I hope I'd break some windows too. I was watching those protests last night and watching all the typical debate grow up around them. It's an election year. Don't upset people or protest is OK, but this is counterproductive and so on and so on. All the debates which always, always, always come at a time like this. And I was thinking of James Baldwin about his line where he was recollecting his experience as a young boy uh, in Harlem, first seeing all the wealth, all the wealth that was in the stores there, strewn in the streets after the riot there. it it's the first time he'd seen actually the, 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 the wealth that was there on offer on the shelves uh and he he writes in a reflection this many years later writes in a reflection you know a careful acknowledgement of what would have been desirable but what was only possible Uh, and a quote it would have been better to have left the plate glass as it had been and the goods lying in the stores it would have been better but it would have been intolerable for harlem had needed something to smash Uh, or perhaps his more Famous line in one of the great essays on why uprisings like this happen. Uh, the law is meant to be my servant and not my master, still less my torturer and my murderer. Anyway, I donated last night to the Minnesota Freedom Fund, uh, which pays bail for arrested protesters. I hope you will too. They're at uh, minnesotafreedomfund.org donate. Uh, the link is in the show notes as well. All right, last thing, and it's kind of related to everything I've been saying today, and it comes from someone saying to me yesterday after reading that piece on Cummings, you know, that's a very depressing prospect. If you're right, what do we do? What if all the avenues for renewal, the mechanisms of democratic control, the emergency breaks that we've talked about on this show before, what if all of those are actually just broken? What if the cords have been cut? Are we all just mad for trying to change things? Do we all have to become centrists now? I don't think so. Not least because, and I've said this elsewhere, I think, I think the generation now can't repeat the false lesson of the 1960s radicals that you can either, that you have to move to the center, that you can only try incrementalism and you can try either a corporatist balancing act or just try to ride a long credit boom until it crashes. We're in a very different situation now. Unlikely to draw the same lessons from defeat, not least because we knew defeat was always possible, that we knew that it was even perhaps likely, not least because the political system uh, is so hostile to renewal that it can't even bring itself. Uh, to try the very effective method of co-option and absorption which it's done in the past but simply because we knew that defeat was possible or likely didn't doesn't mean that we're going to take it as a lesson to give up in any case thinking about this i had on my mind a phrase usually attributed to angela davis although i'm not sure where it actually comes from in her work i haven't been able to find it kind of floats free from context it's very popular online it's this You have to act as if it were possible to radically change the world. And you have to do it all the time. Now, you might say that's the kind of thing you put in a dodgy font over a pixelated graphic and circulate as a boomer inspiration meme, or that it's a nice sounding but meaningless phrase. But I don't think it is. I think it identifies something really essential. And it's this. For all our pretensions... Lots of us are whistling in the dark. We don't know because it's tremendously difficult to know exactly what effect our actions will have. If history shows us that successful social movements exist, it also shows us that they're often beset by failure, that they even often look like failures to people involved in them while they're slowly heaving the world off its axis. How do you keep that going in that moment? You have to act as if it were possible to change the world and you have to do it all the time. What if we were to take that more seriously than just vague inspiration? When we say act as if, we're acknowledging that we don't know, that there is that uncertainty there, but also that there is a power to acting with or claiming that agency which is formally attributed to the people in democracies, but which sometimes feels very absent. Claiming that agency, even if it feels absent, is a key part of ensuring that it actually exists, even bringing it into being. Let's go deeper as well. What would it mean to hold the possibility that it really is possible to radically change the world. It would mean, for instance, thinking that the overwhelming majority of people you meet aren't your enemy or aren't unpersuadable, and that your view shouldn't be a minority view, but should resonate with many, many, many people. That they're equally participants in a political process, just like you. And that means you have to be convinced there is a way to talk to them, as an equal, about how you think the world is and how it can change. Let's get maybe a bit deeper even than that if it were true that it is possibly it is possible to radically change the world then it would mean that it's profoundly wrong to settle with injustice the nags at your conscience that say this is wrong but it's just the way the world is and i can't change it that abandoning principles is somehow the mark of political adulthood that would be wrong It is also a call, among other things, to comradeship to recognise that to translate the possibility of changing the world into reality requires you not to think cynically about those on the same side as you, but they're also working sincerely to the same ends and act as comrades. And that is a discipline. It's not always natural, especially not in the world we live in. It's an acquired habit, but one that has to be practised. And you have to do it all the time because it doesn't come naturally, because doing it all the time is what makes it a reality it doesn't mean living on the protest or working for the party whichever party it means an attitude that runs through all your interactions everything you do as best as possible That human beings turn to freedom like leaves turn to the sun you have to act as if it were possible to change the world and you have to do it all the time it is like all ethical injunctions impossible to live to perfectly it isn't telling you not to doubt we all doubt It isn't telling you not to fear, we all fear. It's not telling you not to disagree, we all disagree and God knows that it says nothing really about how we get from here to there. It's saying something far simpler than that. We all get seized on by these things and they don't magically go away. Fear, doubt, uncertainty. It's just saying that underneath all that you have to embed that conviction. It's possible to change the world. It's possible to radically transform the world. And that's where you come back to and that's where you set out from. And you have to do it all the time. All right. Ahead of us today, Sunak is to give details on that rollback and taper off of the furlough scheme, which will, of course, have its knock on effects from as many as those as many of those who are furloughed find their jobs start to disappear from underneath them. bit of a brouhaha developing over Parliament's return with only 50 MPs in the chamber at a time, Uh, serious concerns about the stifling of debate, the voting system and so on. There is, however, more seriously, a slow burning scandal of care homes, which looks like it's going to ignite further with evidence of a formal plan to discharge Corona cases en masse into nursing homes now coming to light. More on that on Monday as well. And if you're working in a care home, do get in touch with anything interesting and your experiences there. As ever, I'm on James at NavarraMedia.com. As ever too, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, mask up and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I'll see you on Monday. Bye bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to navaramediacom support.